This is Make Something Cool. I am Alex Sugg. Today, I am really excited to be sitting down with Dr. Sherry Walling, who is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, and any number of things that happen in the human experience. So Sherry, thank you so much for being here. I'm really, really excited to chat. It is so good to be with you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. So in doing some research for this episode, I noticed on your website that you said your superpower is finding creative ways to get others unstuck. And I think that's a good launching point for us. Where does that come from? And what exactly does that look like? Yeah. So in my life as a psychologist, I've spent, I don't know, easily 10,000 hours, probably more, um, listening to people talk about their own experiences, their stories, their histories, their sense of themselves. And one of the like superpowers of being able to be a really, really deep listener and being able to be a compassionate but objective sort of part of the story is that when people are living in the middle of their own story and their own assumptions, they take their assumptions as fact, as the way that it is, as this sort of immutable reality. And as an external observer who is really, really well-practiced at listening, often you can find some cracks and crevices in those assumptions and help people come to maybe a slightly modified or just a completely different way of thinking or of seeing a situation, which, you know, helps them get unstuck, helps them not continue to go forward with the same default assumptions they've been holding. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there that's pretty interesting. So I think maybe to start, how does one become a better listener? You know, I think a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to say. (laughs) We sort of treat the speaking part of the interaction or the conversation as the powerful one or the important one. And so I think we can become much better listeners simply by shifting that perspective, by really seeing, listening, hearing, reading between the lines, understanding the context, reading the tone, like really taking in the message as an equally, if not more important, conversational or interaction skill. Mm. So listening, you know, happens because we give it attention. We focus on it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so true. I think too, just in the nature of what you do, you probably, it's probably a little bit, it, it has to come a little bit natural, I imagine, maybe for you because of what you've chosen to do for your career and in helping people. But I do think you're right that a lot of time that equation in our head is like, um, I find this in myself a lot. And I think a lot of people is like, I'm just waiting for someone to finish talking so I can, I can say what I want to say versus sure. like actually letting them speak their mind and then re responding to their full complete thought after that, after really listening deeply. I also liked what you said about like a lot of what we have is like a fixed mindset about a situation and maybe that you can come in and help people see alternate solutions. I'm curious, like, do you have any examples of like times when this has happened where you, where you can think of where, you know, somebody is stuck in a certain mindset and you've come in and really helped them see an alternate path that maybe they couldn't see for themselves? You know, I think one of the superpowers of a lot of creatives is that we can see what's possible, right? We have a picture or a vision of something that we want to make. And 
certainly the road to creativity, the road to making something is <laughs> littered with obstacles and with challenges. And so sometimes my role is in helping people maybe see the outcome of what they thought they were making in a different way. So mm. for example, somebody who is, you know, wants to start a business or wants to, you know, sell something that they've been making to a certain audience. And the road to that end goal, it, maybe it's just not working out for some reason. Maybe, you know, the pandemic closed your store or there's things that have come up. And so one of the challenges then is like, how do you redefine what success means in light of this new information? Right. You had this picture of what it would be. You had an outcome, you had a goal in mind. And all of that's really helpful, obviously, to keep in mind on the road to making something. But sometimes new information presents itself. And so the question then becomes like, how do we recalibrate maybe the closing of a brick and mortar store as, as a new opportunity or mm. as a new challenge, as you know, some part of the road to some other success? Right. Yeah, I think that that's interesting to think about redefining success. And I think for me, that's personally something I've had to like really work on. Like I'm, I'm, uh, I would say my ultimate fear or insecurity in life is the fear of public failure. Like I don't mm. want people to see me fail publicly. Mm -hmm. And a lot, and you know, I, I really love to appear successful on the exterior and I really love to appear like I have it all together on the outside. And a big part of my journey has been let, trying to let go of that and kind of redefining what success actually means. And so much of success is, um, at least traditionally is like all this external stuff. Like, do you have enough money? Do you have enough stuff? Do you have like, maybe what the external world perceives as success versus like that freedom to really step back and say, I can redefine what success means to me. And it doesn't have to look like success to anybody else in society or culture, but that's a pretty hard step to take. And I think for the example you're using is, is really tough if you've, you know, planted your flag and, you know, a, a brick and mortar location or something. And, and yeah. external circumstances kind of take, take you in another direction that can be really tough, but yeah, I mean that that redefining success is a pretty interesting idea and I'm sure that's something you have to work through a lot by dealing with entrepreneurs and leaders like that has to be a, a huge issue. It's it is nuanced and it is really a challenge for a lot of us because on one hand it is so helpful to have the end goal in mind, right? To have mm -hmm. that focused picture to, you know, people use the word sometimes manifest, but like, it's this sense of, I know where I want to go. And I know it specifically. I've thought about it. I've got a vision board. I've written about it in my journal, whatever it is. But that specificity and focus is so helpful to getting things done, right. to reverse engineering the path to that outcome by thinking about all the steps that have to happen for that to be in place. But we have to hold that vision both tightly and loosely at the same time, because there are always going to be things that we can't control. There are always going to be variables that come in. And if we hold too tightly, then it really can undo us in a way that is like really tragic and painful and unnecessary, because sometimes it's just being able to revise and say, I had this goal and this picture in mind, but it's not me. My basic identity, my core happiness, the meaning of my life can't be completely interwoven or interdependent with a goal or an outcome that, you know, you can't perfectly control. Yeah. I think you're, yeah, the idea of identity being wrapped up 
in in what yeah. you do. I'm curious what you've learned about that because I think in the people who you work with and the the work you do as Zen founder, I personally feel this all the time where my identity is constantly wrapped up in my work and the things I do versus who I am, why I'm worthy of lo- like it's this really bad story I think I got as a child and just through my experience of life is that I'm only worthy of love based on the outcomes of what I can produce in the world based on yeah. my my success in my work and whatever else and I think that that's a very common trait amongst high achievers and people who are like leaders entrepreneurs trying to build big things is I think a lot of us are chasing uh love or something deep down and we're trying to get that validation through work and business and it's a your identity is super wrapped up in that and i'm curious if that's the the identity work is a big part of what you you do with with your clients yeah i think it's pretty foundational what's interesting is that it often comes up really forcefully when there's been a a tremendous success so mm. I've been working a lot with entrepreneurs who have exited their companies, who sold their business, sometimes for, you know, buckets and buckets of money. They've gotten the thing that they wanted. And we know there's an identity problem when you achieve the goal and you're miserable and you're lost and you don't know who you are or what you're doing without that, you know, company to sustain your identity. So that, you know, I've been doing this a number of years and it, the pattern is true over and over, but I think it sometimes surprises people that that identity crisis happens most often or it happens very acutely after success. And I think it's really important at all phases of any kind of creative journey, whether that's starting a business or, or pursuing your life as a dancer or whatever it is, that you realize that the things that you do have to be separate from the soul that's inside of you, from the heart that is inside of you, from the relationships and connections and the other things that you love and bring you joy. Because all of these things that we're participating in, they have the power to end, whether that's by injury or by economy. And so I think um, having an identity and a sense of self that's robust, that's bigger than that, that's has connections beyond or outside of our creative endeavor uh, is is a really important part of our mental health. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's hard, it's a it can be a winding road to land there, and a journey to to work on that. I'm curious what made you interested in this work. What made you passionate about doing this? Did you ever did you have some sort of crossroad moment in your life that made you want to pursue this as your work? Because it takes a certain type of person to want to listen and help and do do the work that you do. So I'm curious, how did you land in, in, in your interest in this, what you do? Well, it's kind of unfolded over time. I, I grew up in a household that didn't have a lot of open discussion about emotion or difficult things. And so there was a lot that was unspoken and unsaid. And I think that was quite a hardship on everyone in my family. My mom was diagnosed with MS a couple of years after I was born, which was not a great tragedy, but was a difficult thing. And there was never like any open conversation about that, which always like was sort of head scratching for me as a kid, especially as an adolescent to be like, why do we never talk about the fact that mom's in a wheelchair? And that's sort of weird. Nobody else has a mom in a wheelchair, but nobody's talking about it. So I think I, I was drawn to conversations about 
what was unsaid. And I was drawn to kind of the under the surface curiosity and conversation. So that's pretty common among a lot of psychologists or mental health professionals is that we, for various reasons in our early lives, needed to be emotionally astute or aware or observing because the maybe the adults in our lives weren't able to do that for us or weren't able to sort of guide us through the emotional complexities of the world. Hmm. But I started working with um, people who have really high-intensity jobs. I kind of learned early on in my career that I like, I like to calm people down rather than wake them up. So I like the like mm. really high adrenaline, high intensity person. So I did a lot of work with folks in the military in the beginning of my career, worked in the trauma world um, and helped people who had combat related PTSD adjust back to civilian life, which was a really, really like meaningful, interesting uh, way to start my career. Um, and while I was doing that, I was married to a technology entrepreneur and a lot of the people who were in my living room in the you know evenings and weekends were these other entrepreneurs who were starting companies and who had a lot of the same like level of intensity and stress that I observed in my um, in the military folks that I was working with. So I really wanted to think about how to help support entrepreneurs given the intensity of how much of themselves they pour into their work, mm. how much of their identity, right, is part of their work and to see if we could, you know, help them to be mentally healthier in the process. Yeah, I think that's super interesting that you found similarities between the two. What are some of those similarities between people who had combat-related PTSD and that intensity there? And of course, they're different need to qualify that obviously they're different things. yeah but, but but what are some similarities between the two that you observed in that time that overlap and it's it's not necessarily the combat ptsd that is the connector mm. but it's more that the type of human who is really mission driven who is all in in their commitment to accomplishing the task that's before them um i think you know a lot of people go into the military because they they have a great deal of intensity and they need a great place to put it. Mm. And that's also very true of entrepreneurs. Often entrepreneurs are not folks who necessarily do well in school. They don't necessarily do well in very traditional employment settings. They're people who are kind of wired a little bit differently. And they've found entrepreneurship much like in, in many cases, people have found opportunities in the military mm. to pour out that energy and that passion into something that gives them a little bit of structure, but isn't overwhelming in the structure. So there's some very like sort of personality or persona similarities. Yeah. I just kind of like high intensity people too. Would you say you're a high intensity person? I don't know, actually. I, you know what? My family probably would. <laughs> so on one hand, I'm like a quiet introvert who likes to stay home and read. But on the other hand, my my play activities are like the flying trapeze and circus arts. So I definitely have a, an adrenaline side to me that is like, let's go see what's possible. Right, right. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. I feel similarly. I feel very, I would say some people would say I'm an intense person on a handful of things. And I'm very relaxed on like 95% of other things. But the, that 5%, yeah. I'm a very intense guy. But um, I'm curious, maybe... Everything you said is really good. And I think that it's really interesting to talk about. One thing that I think leaders and I think entrepreneurs, especially in the 
climate of today, a lot of entrepreneurship, especially on like social media, how it's presented, there's definitely like this idealistic version of what life as a founder and entrepreneur is or isn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently going through this myself and, and working through a lot of my personal business planning stuff. And what I've kind of encountered with it is that one, it's, it's, everyone says this, but it, you don't feel it until you're in it, is that it's way harder than I thought it could be. One, mm-hmm. it's just really challenging in a way I've never experienced. But two, I think that it's very lonely because of yeah. how hard it is and how few people are pursuing it. But there's not a lot, like, and it's probably fair, there's not a ton of empathy <laughs> to be found. Where right, it's like, people are like, go, oh, go get a job. <laughs> exactly. What, you're the one just trying to build this stupid business or whatever. It's your fault. You're doing it to yourself, yeah. which I totally, I can empathize with that point of view big time. But I do think that, that that's something I am personally walking through right now is just feeling like I'm trying to do this really difficult thing that not a lot of people are also trying to do. Um, and that can feel somewhat lonely at times. Yeah, I'm curious what are common issues that leaders are dealing with and the people that you work with on a regular basis that others don't normally see? What are things that people don't see that leaders are dealing with? Well, I do think you've nailed it with the loneliness. I think from the outside, it looks like, oh, you're pursuing your dream. You don't have a day job. Like You get to do what you want, Alex. It, it has this certain appearance and there's really a dissonance between what it feels like inside and what the external perception is. Uh, one, because nobody cares about your business or your endeavor as much as you do. Like right. there's, even if you have a business partner, you know, sometimes they're, they're the other person, but like generally speaking, if you're a solo entrepreneur or you're the leader of a company, like you're in it in many ways by yourself. Hmm. And there's all kinds of things that we can do to like limit the loneliness. But I think that is a big part of the experience. I also think that there are lots of really high highs and low lows that people just don't see, especially when so much of yourself is invested in what you're doing. You know, when your rankings fall or when you have an error in your newsletter that makes you look dumb, (laughs) Mm. when people are mean to you on Twitter or when you, you know, you, you hit, post on that Instagram post and like any of those things, any little error, any misstep, any mistake, it feels like it reflects on you in a way that I think is really different than when you're an employee. Mm. So, and then the high highs are great. Like, you know, wonderful things happen and you're writing the you know, the peak of the experience, you're like, this is going to work. It's going to be amazing. And you get to live there for a little while until like something else happens and sort of knocks you out of that experience. Right. So it is a pretty um, emotionally volatile, isolating experience. I also, you know, we joke in the entrepreneurial communities that I'm part of like, congratulations, you own your own business. You can work whichever 18 hours in the day you want. You know, right. it's, it's not easy to think of something, develop it, bring it into existence, make people care about it. I mean, essentially your whole job is making, trying to get people to care about a thing that you care about that they don't inherently care about. Right. And that is a brutal job. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all about trying to convince and persuade people of an idea or of a th- or of a service or of a product or whatever it is that you fully are bought in on and believe in 
and to persuade other people to feel similarly, that's really hard. It's really, it's a really difficult thing to change someone's mind about anything, let alone like getting them to spend money. It's a hard task. And to sell yourself over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. Yeah. To sell your idea, your ability to follow through, like, you know, even if you're selling like something on Amazon, like you're, you're still trying to convince people of your ability to bring this thing into the world. And so you're selling yourself over and over again in a way that I think entrepreneurs experience a lot of rejection and that, that wears you down for sure. Mm, That's true. I don't know if people, and again, this is probably like taboo because I think the entrepreneur and, and, and to the outside world, it's like boohoo, you have your business, blah, 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 whatever. But I think that you're so spot on and like what people don't see is that 98 5% of being a founder and entrepreneur is getting rejected. Yeah. And so much of the job is being able to withstand rejection at a level that most people don't want to deal with because you just keep feeling like you keep hitting walls where people are like, I don't care. I I don't care. I do not care. I don't care. I care less. I don't care. And then finally someone's like, I do care. I'll buy that. And it's like, exactly. But it's, but you're right. I think that that level of rejection, I don't know if a lot of people talk about that as being part of the job, but it's fundamental to, yeah. to what you do. Yeah. And I think the challenge is that when people only see the successes, sometimes that can breed envy or jealousy, right? Especially among your non-entrepreneurial community. Like, for example, I got accepted to do a TEDx talk and I'm doing a like circus performance as part of my TEDx talk. And so my circus community, they're wonderful and supportive. But I know that there are people who are like, why does she get to do that? Like, she's not the best aerialist. Like what, you know, Mm. there's these, there's this like, I could do that. But the reality is that I've applied to TED like seven times, you know, over and like all of those times of getting rejected, people don't necessarily know that. And so I think that's this other thing is that when you have a success, there can be this gap of envy or this separateness between you and the others around you, the people in your family, your friends who haven't experienced that level of success because they haven't, you know, gotten rejected 55 times. Right. So I think... um, it's a it can be tricky because you're a little like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like if you get rejected over and over and over and over, it's like, wow, you know, that's depressing. And people are like, well, you're bringing this on yourself. And then if you're really successful, it's possible that you will be looked at with with envy or with separateness because your success draws you away from the people perhaps that you came up with or from the family that you came from. Yeah. And then navigating your internal dialogue in that moment is probably really hard because you're like, well, I got the TEDx talk now and I've applied seven times and gotten rejected and I've done the thing to get me here. Like there's all this like probably um, like a level of pride too that will start to arise and which is in one hand very valid because it's true. You did all that work that no one else did in order to get it. Um, But then there's the other side of it where you're like, Oh, this is kind of uncomfortable because now I'm being seen as somebody who's getting something. And even though I did earn it, it's kind of awkward now. And it's like hard. It's a really weird thing to balance, you know? And I think the reality is that the vast majority of us who are successful in these creative endeavors are creative because, or are successful because we just are 
robust to the rejection because we do it over and over and over. And in my work, I work a lot with pretty successful folks. And again, it's, it's a little bit of that woe is me story, but it is really lonely at the top in all of the ways that we sort of have already talked about. So I think people don't necessarily appreciate the challenge that entrepreneurs feel at really all parts of the journey. And I think we could use creatives or people who are making cool things interchangeably with that, right? There are folks who are kind of obsessed with a vision, with a goal, and they're doggedly pursuing it. They're determined to chase it down. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important note. And I'm happy you said it because I do think it's not just like the entrepreneur building some giant company. It's anybody willing to be different from their peers and to put their ass on the line and make something in public and whatever that means. So it could be making a YouTube video. It could be writing a newsletter. It could mean doing lettering and putting that on Instagram. Like you're, you're, it's a very vulnerable, courageous act to start doing things that other people that most people are not willing to do. It's an act of courage and bravery to do that. And that because no one else or not many people, other people are doing it. It is inherently lonely because you are, there are not as many people around you doing the same thing. So it applies from, you know, the smallest starting creator to the biggest entrepreneur. I think that that feeling is probably mutual. Definitely applies to, to any scale of just stepping out and taking that active courage to, to make something. I also have a lot of empathy for folks who are creatives right now at this point in history, because I think criticism is so easy. (laughs) You know, it's so easy to get the snide comments on your YouTube video or on your lettering or like everybody has access from the cheap seats. And that was, you know, that was even different when I was coming up and when I was starting as a writer or starting some of my professional activities, Mm. you know, I would get reviews by reviewers or things like that, but not necessarily like everyone and their aunt Trisha has the opportunity to sling mud at whatever you've done from the Instagram comments. Right. And my son actually, he's 16 and he wants to be a writer. And I like love that he wants to be a writer, but I'm also like, oh, dude, it's a hard <laughs> road. <laughs> like, yeah. you sure you don't want to be like an engineer? <laughs> or you know? So right. because now I think more than ever, there's just a lot of like, critical crap on the internet that makes it really easy for people to tear down your work without knowing you, without knowing the context. And it's, I think, really, really difficult for creators of all types to be robust to that kind of onslaught of criticism. For sure. And I think psychologically, you would know this because it's your your job, but psychologically, for every thousand positive responses you can get to your work, that one negative comment is the one that'll stick out. Do you totally. know what's going on in your in our brains when that's when that happens? Do you know why that is? Yeah, I mean it's it, in a way it's our brains doing their very best to keep us safe. So our brains are hyper attuned to threats. Mm. And so they kind of see all of those 50 positive comments and they're like cool 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 not a threat not a threat and then they see that one that's like really critical and it's like red alarm bells go off, like threat, threat, threat. This person wants to harm us. And so our brains are really geared to be hyper attuned to 
angry faces, negative comments, anything that could signal a threat to us. Mm. And so our work then as creatives becomes helping to talk our brain down and realize, okay, that person's a jerk, but they're prob- they're not really a threat. And we have to counterbalance the one negative with the 50 positive. And so it becomes a very active what we call metacognitive process, like thinking about our own thinking, Mm. talking ourselves through what is a very evolutionary adaptive default setting to be really aware of those negative things. But we have to sort of undo that. We have to rewire our brains when it comes to trying to do creative stuff in public. Right. Not sure our brains were designed for threat responses through YouTube. <laughs> it's, 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 a pretty, it's a pretty treacherous, uh, it's a pretty treacherous totally. task to navigate that right now. And I, it's crazy how much technology has surpassed what our primal intuitions and think thought, like I just, yeah, our threat responses to, to this stuff, how it all works together is really interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your book, Touching Two Worlds. I see it back in the background. Everyone should pick it oh, up, yeah. pick up a copy. There it is. Yeah. I, it's a book that's, about dealing with loss and grief. And I'm just curious about how that book came to be because it, and how it kind of crosses over into the world of your day-to-day work. Like how, why did you decide to write this book? Maybe for people who haven't read it or seen what it's about, what is high level? What is it about? How did it come to be? Yeah. Let's get into it. Yeah. So the book is about my experience losing my dad to esophageal cancer and then my brother to suicide six, within six months of each other. So as someone who was building a career, raising children, doing a lot of speaking, like I already had a very robust sort of public life talking with entrepreneurs about mental health. But while I was doing that, my family was really unraveling. And mm. you know, ultimately, two of them died. And so... The title, Touching Two Worlds, is kind of about this experience of being someone who's like growing life, like in the midst of building and creating and making cool stuff, and then also kind of whiplashed, catapulted into a world where people's lives are falling apart, and there's sickness, and there's disease, and there's addiction, and then ultimately death. So for me and for a lot of the people that I work with, whether there's entrepreneurs or creatives, obviously we're we're driven and full of hope and optimism and all this stuff, but then life also happens. And I think grief is one of those things that we don't necessarily give a lot of space to in our culture. It's sort of like, oh, you know, somebody in your family dies. That's very sad. You have a funeral, you have a memorial service, you take a couple days off and you're like back at work on Thursday. Mm. And I found that to be really a challenge and something that I wanted to speak to, to sort of help people see the value in taking grief seriously and the value in creating space within ourselves and within our lives for the lessons that that kind of an unraveling world can offer us. So the book is a series of essays. They're really short essays. And Most of them are a combination of a story from my experience, then with a reflection or an invitation. I call them take a moment sections, where, you know, some of them are breath practices, some of them are yoga positions, some of them are journaling prompts, but things that might be helpful to engage people so that they can kind of go into their grief, go in deeper 
with the idea that you go in and through, not like over and around. Mm. It's heavy. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a sad book. (laughs) It's like, just spoiler alert, like it doesn't end well. (laughs) I'm curious how you, maybe I'll open up with my, I'll, I'll throw my story in first before I ask you this question, but... So for me, I, I, I also, I lost my father 10 years ago to, to cancer. Mm-hmm. It was liver cancer, but, um, and I was 20 at the time, just a kid, didn't know what the hell was going on in life. All that, you know, classic 20 year old, not knowing, and then having, yeah. having to grow up pretty quick, just based on a circumstance. But when you talk about grief being, um, I didn't, yeah, I think grief is pretty un unknown in our culture. Like, I don't think I grew, yeah. I don't think I ever really properly grieved. I've tried, I've done therapy off and on, I've done all kinds of stuff, but I still like we, you know, and there's all this other stuff. We had a pretty strained relationship and not, not the best situation, but like there was never a funeral. There was never a ton of closure. There was just all this stuff. And I feel like I kind of never knew how to grieve and I never knew how to sit with it in a way that I felt like was the most healthy and I don't and I didn't really know where to turn to figure out how to do that yeah so I'm curious for you like having gone through what you went through how did you deal with grief during this time because that's a lot of loss in a really short period of time that's a lot to take in yeah well I I first want to validate that I think our culture just doesn't do grief well I wrote an essay in the book about the depictions of grief in like children's movies because often there's death in children's movies. Mm -hmm. Like the movies we all grew up with, like even like Star Wars, right? Like there's, there's a lot of death, but there's no treatment of grief. So either you, you experience a loss and you like get right back out there and save the world Mm -hmm. or you become this like stewing, brooding, broken person. Like, like Darth Vader, for example. Hmm. So anybody who grieves is like, can't get over it and they become a villain. So I, I guess I, I just think it's really important to reiterate that point that there are not really good models of how to grieve, which is really a loss because in other cultures and other times and place, you maybe would have lived with an extended family. You would have known many people in the course of your childhood and up growing up, who would die. And there were all of these cultural rituals about how you respond to loss. And we don't really have any of those. Mm. So I think for me, my grief took a few forms. One obvious one is writing. You know, it felt really important for me to record what I was experiencing. Mm. And partially because I couldn't quite believe it was happening. (laughs) And also because I... I wanted to leave a story really for my kids so they they would know this part of our family's history. I really believe that when we have painful things happen in our family histories and we don't talk about them, we keep them sort of uh, sequestered or sheltered or in the shadows, that those those intergenerational wounds can like wreak havoc on our family members, you know, for generations to come. So especially because my brother died by suicide and that's a very um, difficult thing to talk about and a lot of families don't talk about it. I wanted my kids to know his story. So I wrote, I wrote a lot. And I think that was very therapeutic for me. 
And it helped me not feel so stuck in my grief, but feel like I could work with it in a way that was interactive. The other thing that really became important in my life during this season of grief was was actually the circus. It's what I talked about as this sort of playful part of my life. But it was such an embodied practice, right? We know academically, we know physiologically that extreme experiences are held in our cells. Like our bodies carry the stress of the things that we go through, our emotional pain. But many of us don't really have ways to release that storage of emotion. Mm. And so the circus for me became that. It became a place for me to test my strength and to get really strong and to be able to like take risks and be trained. Uh, it also can be very artistic and expressive. And so um, I think it really helped me reground in my body and sort of helped my nervous system reset, if that makes sense. It does. Um, it's now a really huge part of what I recommend for anybody who's living in grief is to sort of find something that really helps you get into your body because grief is a very embodied process. Mm. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I, I was just talking to a friend one of my best friends and he's been through a lot of a lot. He's been through a lot in his life. And he, we were having this conversation about therapy and mental health and lots of this stuff. And he was really talking a lot about some of what he's working through right now is the trauma that he's experienced in his life and how it's uh, shows up in his body. And I felt Mm -hmm. like it was very interesting to hear him talk about it. And the more, I thought about it and hearing him talk about it. I'm like, yeah, like our brains, they're this like this amazing supercomputer in one hand, but they're also just like this wetware object in our skull. It's which when something happens in your brain, that goes somewhere within your body too, you know? And And it's, and if you go through like for me, like the trauma of, you know, watching my dad die or the trauma of other stuff in my life, the good things that have happened in my life, those positive, like those go somewhere in your body too. And it really had me thinking like we talk, you know, and I think it's beautiful that we're talking a lot more about mental health and society at large now, but I don't know, we're not talking a lot about like the connection, the mind body connection with these things. And I was, uh, the next question I had for you is what does movement have to do with our mental health? And you kind of, just answered it for me. But I'm curious what you think about that mind-body connection with mental health. I think it's going to be the main conversation moving forward. There are lots of things that are shifting in our understanding of how our bodies and brains work together. For example, something as simple as like the a huge portion of the serotonin in our body system isn't in our brains, it's in our gut, it's in our Mm. bellies. And so when we think about uh, even obesity or different like patterns of eating or weight gain, so much of that is very related to our mood. It's related to our emotion life, Um, chronic pain, shoulder pain, all kinds of like chronic ailments have roots in our emotional experience. Mm. And that's no longer like fringe science. That's becoming kind of core to how most professionals understand the mind-body connection. I think it's also going to be really interesting where we're moving into a new era in mental health treatment where we're going to see psychedelic-supported therapy will be approved by the FDA in the next few years, which is really very much a mind-body intervention. 
right? A, a substance that's imbibed into the body that changes the chemistry of the body to allow for a therapeutic process that changes both the brain and the emotional experience. So I, I just, there's so much that's shifting in culture that I think hopefully the way that we've segmented you know, you go talk to your therapist about your feelings and then you go to your internist for your chronic pain issue. Those are really, really separate now and they probably shouldn't be. Mm. So the more we're talking about integrative medicine, I think the, the better our conversations about mental health are going to be. Yeah, I fully agree that the, the two are so interconnected and I think that we're we're moving toward them being one conversation versus all these separate conversations, which is really cool. You touched on psychedelics. I know that you're a proponent of psychedelic therapy. I'm curious, maybe just give me what you've learned about that. Maybe your experience with it. And I, I, I have that same friend who I was talking about earlier when he was talking mm -hmm. about body, uh, the mind-body connection has done a few very immersive psychedelic therapy sessions, guided type yeah. things in his life. And they've been absolutely life-changing for him in a very positive mm -hmm. way. And I keep hearing this story. I personally have never done psychedelics. I'm open to it, yeah. but I'm, I'm interested in, in it. And I don't think I've talked to like an actual professional about it. That's a lot of people yeah. who have experienced it as like the, the patient, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So I really did come into it as a scientist. You know, I was really curious about the work that was being done with MDMA and PTSD. Mm. PTSD is, uh, is pretty difficult to treat because our brains and bodies are so protective against releasing the threat that is loaded into our traumatic memories. Mm. You know, again, we talked about that adaptive response where our brains and bodies are hyper attuned to threat. That gets really solidified in PTSD. And while a number of people get better when they have PTSD symptoms, for a certain subset of folks, it's really hard to treat, mostly because we can't turn off the fear response. Well, MDMA, which is the clinical or the, the street drug ecstasy, is very effective at turning off the fear response for a short period of time. It inhibits the activity of the amygdala and it kind of floods the body with both uh, serotonin and oxytocin. So neurotransmitters that improve our mood and hormones that sort of help us feel connected or empathetic. So it's very interesting because it allows us to sort of tinker with the chemistry of the brain while then doing therapy. So the research really looks very strong, which is why the FDA will likely approve um, MDMA-supported uh, therapy for PTSD probably in the next 18 months. And similarly, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms or mushrooms, super effective for treating depression, super effective for treating probably alcohol use disorders. So my, my brother, um, you know, died of the combination of alcohol addiction and depression. And the idea that there could have been something that would have been clinically helpful to him that people have really known about for a long time but really got suppressed during, you know, the 70s and the 80s with the war on drugs. Like research in psychedelics virtually stopped, mm. which is when you see the early research is like ridiculous because we haven't had new intervention in mental health care for a long time. And SSRIs like serotonin are, or uh, like Trozac, for example, are really helpful at diminishing 
depressive symptoms, but they also diminish the other end of the emotional spectrum. They diminish our capacity for joy, for pleasure. Right. I, I hear I hear a lot that it's like you're 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 you numb out. It's like you're not on a SSRI. It's like you're not high or low. You're just kind of there. Yeah. And for many folks, it's life-saving. Right. So again, I I don't I'm I'm not anti-medicine. I just think that wow, we should probably continue to work on the problem because I don't think the solution is good enough. Mm. So anyway, I have a lot to say about this. I won't take up too much time, but I trained with MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, I've trained to work with ketamine, which is currently a legal substance that is effective at treating depression and suicidality. And so I I think it's a really interesting you know, unfolding new way of thinking about mental health care that everybody should at least be aware of and be able to be a savvy consumer of. Because I think the danger of this conversation is people are like, oh, I'm going to treat my depression by taking some mushrooms. And they do sort of the DIY deal at home. And that's really not the same as having a therapeutic experience. It's not just the chemical. It's the chemical plus the therapeutic intervention. Right. Yeah, the the most effective stories I've heard of this is almost always with like a guide of some sort. So you take mm-hmm. you take the the magic mushrooms or whatever it is, yeah. and then and then you're kind of walked through it with a with a therapeutic element alongside the process, and you're kind of walking through different stages, and you have somebody there who's kind of receiving what's going on and walking you through yeah. stuff. And yeah, it's a very interesting, very interesting space. I I'm. I keep hearing more and more about it in a really positive, positive way. And it seems like it's becoming a lot more normalized, the conversation around it, which is exciting to think about. Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Exciting and with some caution, right? I mean, there mm. are 80 new centers for psychedelic studies at major research universities in the U.S. So, you know, Harvard, UCSF, Johns Hopkins has really been the leader in psilocybin research for many years. So it's happening, it's coming, but I... I'm always cautious about the way that I talk about it because I I do feel like if people misunderstand what it is and just think like I can go take some LSD and I'll be super creative and not have depression, obviously that's that's not exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good good disclaimer. I recently had a a conversation with one of my best buddies about it, and he's he's very much a proponent. And I was like, dude, I don't know if this is for everyone. And he's like, Mm-mm. I think it might be for everyone. And we had this little discussion <laughs> about it. Um, and I think that it's good to hear from you about like, hey, just make sure everyone we're not, uh, or you are uh, a doctor. I am not a doctor. So whatever anyone decides to do while listening to this, please go talk to your doctor before trying anything, obviously. But um, yeah, I think that's really cool and exciting to hear about. And anything that can help people feel better and heal up. Because yeah, I think... You know, back to my experience, uh, I didn't know a lot of where to turn. And for me, it's it's my outlet for my mental health. You know, I've done therapy. I've done lots of stuff, gone through seasons of pretty serious depression. And like the best thing for me has always been getting outside and moving and working out. Mm-hmm. And like my, yeah. the, and for me, that's the proof of like the, the mind body connection is like when I'm taking care of my body, when I'm moving, when I'm sweating, when I'm exerting, when I'm putting stress on my body, I just feel infinitely better across the board. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that myself, but it's exciting to hear about these other 
potential ways to help people feel better. It's really cool. And I, I would love the standard course of conversation when someone is struggling with, whether it's depression or chronic pain, that we first talk about, hey, how much, is, how much are you moving? How much are you moving your body? How much outside time are you getting? Right. How are you sleeping? And what are you eating? Mm -hmm. How much water are you drinking? (laughs) Right. Often we kind of skip to like, okay, here's your Prozac prescription or like, hey, let's go do some psychedelics. But we're not doing the really foundational things that help to keep our body and our mind robust. So I think for anybody who's listening, like whether whatever sort of trauma or depression or like hard things that you carry... There's so much to be said for just really, really caring for yourself from your head down to your toes as a way of helping you to be resilient in the face of difficulty. Definitely. I think, Sherry, to close out, I just for I'm trying to think of somebody, maybe a listener who could be listening to this now. They might be struggling. They might be having a tougher time. I'm curious, like... I know you don't have any information on this person, no context, (laughs) but at a high level, maybe what are some ways someone can get started in getting unstuck? If they're feeling stuck out there, what are some things you would recommend at the highest level to someone? Yeah, I mean, I think stuck happens in lots of ways, but some, some things I would be curious about is like, is there a way to change your context? So sometimes when you're staring at the same four walls and the same setting and the same humans, it can be difficult to think in new ways. So one simple thing is to get up, get out of the house, like go camping, go to a coffee shop, like just move your context and see if that shifts how you're feeling inside. Um, Obviously, the second thing I might suggest would be to move your body, like let your body get super exhausted, go on that long hike, climb that mountain, swim the lake, whatever it is for you, so that you begin to have a new physiological experience Mm. and see if that shifts how you're thinking or where you're stuck. Third is to get a sounding board, right? Whether that's a therapist or a mastermind group or a coach or an art teacher or someone who understands you and your context a bit, but also is an objective entity, is separate from you. And see if they can sort of poke some holes in your assumptions or help ask you some questions that will get you thinking differently. So, you know, it's it can be this sort of playful, creative enterprise. But I think the thing that I would say is like, just don't give up. Like, it's okay to be stuck. We all get stuck. And you can wait it out. And then you can, you know, do some things to try to shift the situation while you wait to see if that speeds it along. But you will get unstuck at some point, I promise. That's really cool to hear. Sherry, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where where do you want people to connect with you, your work? Obviously, everyone should pick up the book, um, listen to your podcast. I'm curious where you want to redirect people. Yeah. Um, yeah, Touching Two Worlds is the name of the book. And that's... Uh, it's it's a really uh, it's a really good book. It's hard to read because it's sad, but there's a lot in there that has value for people. And folks can listen to my podcast, which is Zen Founder, which talks about mental health and entrepreneurship, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Sherry Walling. Awesome, Sherry. Thanks so much for li- being on, and thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and want to get them sent directly to your inbox, just head over to alexsug.com. Sign for the newsletter and you'll always know when a new episode drops. 
And this episode was edited and produced by Josh Perez. And if you are looking for help with your podcast, Josh is the dude. He's a great producer and an even better human being. So get in touch with him at justjoshperez.com. I'll be back soon with another new interview. So until then, let's go make something cool. Thank you.